Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday afternoon, <coughs> and let me see if I can be efficient this week. I want to do the bio today of uh, somebody unusual, Rabbi Meal. Today's uh, uh, podcast is being sponsored by uh, Levy and Lolly by Levy Friedman. It's the I think twenty I believe it's the twenty fifth yard site of his father, late Rock Mill Freeman, very well known person in Baltimore, one of the big um, individuals, I would say, involved in the creation of modern from Baltimore. Uh, I remember him very well, and uh, Tarodaska, you know, that kind of thing, um, and uh, but I I knew him, but I, I know Levy and Lolly much better. Uh, so the Shamsham and Aliyah, and I would say that they are bringing a credit to his name. They certainly helped me during the corona, I'll tell you that. Now, with any further ado, um, um, the week before Pesach, so I started looking around for ideas to talk about for Shabbos Agado, because usually I do a whole big shmeel. And um, I happened to see in the Keshe's book, which I like, that he brought something from... Uh, uh, which I see from time to time, but I find usually very dense, very difficult book. Uh, but I'm going to talk about it today. I'm talking about somebody probably you never heard of most people, because uh, he's somebody who was a giant who, for some reason, left no footprint. <laughs> I would say and that's Ramosha Victor Amil, who was the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, and before that, chief rabbi in Antwerp. He was a very, very big person, very big Talmud Chacham, uh, very, very big. And like I say again, doesn't seem to have left much of a footprint uh, because he was in the Mizrahi, I think, and politics and things like that. It's interesting in this in this regard. But uh, let me get right down to it. The person we're talking about, even though his name was Moshe Avigdor Amil, so it sounds like a Sephardi or something like that, an Israeli, but actually he was a Litvak, born in the heart of Lithuania or Belarus, if you want to get down to it, um, near Grodno, in other words, what they call now Belarus. That from the Jewish perspective, if we went back 120 years ago, before the First World War, it was all the Russian Empire, and Lithuania would be what we call today Lithuania, Latvia, and Belarus. You know, that's that's what it was. Um, so whatever the political boundaries are today, but that's he was a Litvish, and um, he's one of these kids who was a total Eloy. He clearly was a genius, as you'll see, and so. He had like the royal road. Um, when he was like bar mitzvah, when he turned thirteen, they sent him to Tells. This is he born eighteen eighty two. Okay, let's start like that. And he died on his birthday, so eighteen eighty two to nineteen forty six. Was that? I guess uh, sixty four years old. He died young from a heart attack after people upset him, as we'll see. <clears throat> uh, so here's somebody who's born in eighteen eighties. This was what we would call the golden age of the Litvish yeshivas. As he came up in the 1890s, if he's born in 1882, then he's 13 in 1895. That's when Tells was Tells. And that's when Slobodka was Slobodka, you know. And Chaim Briska was running around and all these people. And he did one of those 
Grand Tours. He was two years in Tells, and I remember from the very beginning, the end of Tells was very mockman in those days. If you're ninth grader, you go, don't go into the 10th grade, uh, and 10th grader doesn't go to 11th grade until you pass the Bechinas and all the rest of it. I think they put him right away, like in the top sheer or something, which was very unusual. So he saw his tremendous ball, Kishrin. He learned two years in Tells. This is, the, as they say, the time of Rablazer Gordon and Shemichkop. Okay. Then from there, he went to, where was it? I think he went to Brisk. And he learned from Chaim Brisker. Um, whole Kutchum. I'll say it again, the whole Kutchum. Uh, that's what he did it once upon a time. And then, I think he went to Chaim Meiser. <laughs> you, you see what I mean? And he learned in Chaim Meiser's elite kolel. I think it's called the kibbutz. The kibbutz doesn't mean like Israeli kibbutz. Kibbutz is the name of a certain type of kolel. <clears throat> and uh, that means he was with senior guys. So I'm telling somebody who's a teenager still. And he was a, already in a, a highly elite kolel. Uh, you hear what I'm saying? So clearly we're talking about a super lamdan. Uh, and then he got, and he knew the Chavetz Chaim. I forget exactly how, but obviously if he hung around Chaim Meiser, this was the period... Uh, he writes, by the way, about it. Uh, he says, I knew Rechaim Meiser very well, and uh, he didn't have time for us during the week because he was up to his ears in communal stuff. You know, the famous Rechaim, he would go from room to room, and this room is a Din Torah, and this room is a this, and this room is a politics, and this room is a terrible Shiloh, and, you know, he could multitask. That's who Rechaim Meiser was. And our hero kind of, like, learned from that. And Shabbos was when Rechaim Meiser would get together with the guys in his kolel, who during the week learned by themselves and talked to each other in learning. And on Shabbos, he would like give them time. And, you know, he would sit down in a very, uh, shall I say, disorganized fashion. Uh, and would say, no, what are you learning? And then that then it started all the talking and learning, you know. And, uh, you know, people throw uh, concepts out and he would knock them down or admit them. You know, Rechamis was a genius. So, no, let's put it this way. We have somebody who was brilliant who was exposed to all the brilliant gedolim in Lithuania. Let's put it that way. Exposed to all the brilliant Gedolim in Lithuania. And, uh, and I remember he got Smicha <laughs> from, who was it? First of all, the Rabbanim in Vilna. It was uh, the Rav Shlomo Kohn, you know, the, the big Cheshik Shlomo. And then he also got Smicha from the Orsamech and the Ragachover. <laughs> okay? And to get Smicha from them, you had to take a Bechin of a month. You get, you, you, this is the old school. It's not written test. You sit and talk to them and learn a young Valila for, for a couple of weeks. Because you think they stop give a smicha like nowadays, you know. wasn't like that. And so you clearly see who I'm talking about. And that means by the time the guy's 20, 22, 23, something like that, which would mean what? The years before the First World War. It would mean, roughly speaking, uh, you know, 1904, 1905, 1906, that kind of thing, which was the time of the, of the First Russian Revolution. So he's already something, okay? And uh, he gets a job as a rogue in a small town. Uh, Svensian, I think my father was there a little bit. Now, this is all in the area of, of Vilna. So again, Vilna today is part of the country of Lithuania. That time it would be Litvish. After the First World War, it was part of the Republic of Poland because of the way that they divided the borders. But it's within the world of that you and I are familiar with they read about all time in the stories of 100, 120 years ago when you had the altar of Slobodka and all these people running around with Chaim Brisker and, you know, Chaim Meiser and so forth, and so forth and so on. 
So this is the milieu we came out of. Uh, didn't go to college or anything like that. Now, on the side, though, cl clearly, it's, you'll see from later on, he picked up uh, secular knowledge. I mean, you know, it's not, believe me, autodidact does not equal going to college. But, you know, still, it's a little unusual. Well, I guess he was unusual. This is going to be part of his makeup because he's a Gona Gonim, but he also was uh, um, a Zionist uh, in, in that era, which was not so common in the Yeshiva world. And the rabbi he replaced in Shemansiyam was also a Zionist. Um, uh, what do you call it? The founder of, uh, uh, of Rhinus was there. He replaced Rhinus. You know, the guy who founded the Mizrahi party. Because Rhinus left there to go to uh, Lida to start his Mizrahi type yeshiva there, the original Tarbadas. And anyhow, I don't just throw names at you. My point is that here somebody becomes a rub in a small town uh, in the decade before the First World War in Tsarist Russia. Uh, I'm sure that the big challenge that anybody could make as a, as a community rub in those years, if you wanted to be Epis anything, wait a minute. anything up uh, the, if, if you want to be in, if you were aware of what's going on in the world around you so um, the period before the first world war was I would say among the peak periods of anti fromness and uh, kfira and uh, I'm, I mean intellectually and uh, challenges to uh, Yiddish Kai Torah things like that from an intellectual point of view, Acharaam, all those guys. So, either a Rav could simply say like this, I'm not being gorgeous, all this, I'll, I'll spend my time in the base medrash and you know, block the world out. But then you give up on trying to have any contact or influence the people in your town, especially the young. Or else you try to fight it by contacting the young and debating this sort of stuff and, and, and working it through as best you can, which requires that you pick up a lot of limurichol, you know, on your own. That's clearly who our hero was. Um, it's famous that uh, when he was 1907, he was offered a job to be the chief rabbi in St. Petersburg. That was a millionaire community um, by Baron Gunzburg. The Gunzburgs were the richest Jews in Russia. And uh, one at that time, uh, D uh, David Gunzburg was actually a from guy, believe it or not. And um, they needed a chief rabbi over there. They wanted somebody who could speak Russian. Clearly, our hero picked up Russian which wasn't so common among the Gedolim. Yeah, Reb Chaim Meiser, for example, didn't speak Russian, or Reb Chaim. Uh, and uh, they figured this guy is as good as you get from the yeshiva world. I remember they wanted Rav Tzair. He wasn't from, you know, Relaysia Gordon said, are you crazy? And the guns were backed off. Say, where can I find a from guy who will be sufficiently modern uh, in his uh, mahalach that would work in the St. Petersburg community where you have a more uh, Russianized and cultured, uh, you know, Russian-Jewish population, who can be much on them? Now, it would have been fascinating if he would have got the job, but apparently he, he didn't get out because he was too young. He was 25. I think that's just interesting. In the years before the First World War, 1907 to 1914 or 1917, when the Russian Revolution came, if a guy like him, who was, uh, you know, uh, higher than most of the others, especially in the ability to speak in European 
culture-wise, for a, a guy who's total Shiva product. So um, it would have been very interesting. <laughs> anyway, he ended up getting another job. These are little places you never heard of. They're all in the Vilna-type area. And he was a rub there, and uh, down through, including the First World War, which means he went through all the junk of the First World War. If you want to know what the First World War was, for Jews, it's not so well known. I did a series on this. It's on the YouTube a couple years ago. Uh, the First World War was like living now in Ukraine in the in combat zone. It's a very good sush, though, because Putin is not out to get the Jews per se, but we all know if you're Jewish and you're in the wrong time, the wrong place, the Russians will blow you up. The Ukrainians will blow you up. It doesn't matter, you know, who wins if you get killed or maimed. That's why we're trying to bring all the that organ, from organizations, not only from the Jewish organization, trying to get everybody the heck out of Ukraine. doesn't matter who wins. I'll say it again. It's not that the Russians are going after the Jews, because they're not. But it doesn't matter. It's the same thing in First World War. It wasn't that the Germans or this one they were going after the Jews, but meanwhile, it's a war going on. So it was a hell of a time to be there, and that's where he stayed. Now, there's no question in my mind that living through all this stuff, and then in the aftermath of the First World War, was terrible for the Jews in Eastern Europe, for a whole bunch of reasons, including the fact that the First World War lasted another four years in Eastern Europe. This is not so well known. And uh, he was in the Poland part, not the Ukrainian part of uh, this part of the world. Uh, the Poles, the Polish army came through, and the Poles themselves did a lot of pogroms. They don't want to talk about it today, and they'll deny it, and so forth, and so on, or they'll blame the Jews. So I'm not talking about Ukrainian pogroms. That's a separate parsha. Our hero didn't live in Ukraine. At the time, he was a rabbi in, in the Vilna area. 100,000 Jews were shechted by the Ukrainians. You hear what I said? Mamash in 1919, 1920. That was a great wave of terrible pogroms in which 100,000 Jews were killed almost exactly 100 years ago. But even outside Ukraine, in the part that was taken over by Poland, the Poles killed a lot of Jews uh, during the wars going from town to town, and they rioted and raped and this and that and the other. The only thing is, just like today, Poland is afraid of America. They need help from the West. So uh, when they did these pogroms, the Jews of the West made a protest. They tried their best anyway. And Woodrow Wilson, President of the United States, appointed an investigation commission in 1920 to go to Poland and see what the heck was going on over there. It was headed by Henry Morgenthau. That would be the father of Roosevelt, Secretary of the Treasury. So not Henry Morgenthau Jr., but Henry Morgenthau Sr. And Henry Morgenthau Sr. was a self-hating Jew, basically. He didn't, you know, he didn't even have a Seder, get it? Um, and his son, by the way, the future secretary was there. And what they wanted was a whitewash of Poland. And they kind of did something of a whitewash, right? They kind of did a, did a whitewash. But um, even so, they shined the light of publicity, so Poland had to sort of back off. So let's put it this way. If you're Moshe Victor Emil and you're rabbi in a grieve or one of these kind of communities, Poland is not the best idea, you know, pl place to be. Although there certainly were zillions of Jews in the, in the Republic of Poland in the 1920s and 30s. In the middle of all this, as I said before, he was a Zionist. The reasons are simple. Uh, people just don't understand the rising anti-Semitism that came from the late 1800s, okay? And um, they, I mean, in the civilized countries, in France, in Italy, in, in, I say Italy, in Germany, Austria, 
and it was not looking good. This is why Herzl started Zionism. Even he was assimilated. You could see it's not good. And people who gave that assessment were, were drawn to the Zionist movement. The Haredim who opposed it said that the Kfira that they have is so bad that, you know, the, 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 how shall we say it? The Rufu is worse than the Maka. A Zionist would say, I guess, no, the Rufu is not worse than the Maka. The Maka is the Kfira part. Okay, that's true. But the Rufu is better than the Maka. <laughs> you see? And, uh, you know, Satmar would say that the or where they are good at that time would say Drufua is worse than the Maka. If you're Mizrahi, if you're like a Rabbi Mio, you say that's baloney. Drufua is better than the Maka. We have to work to fix the Maka. No question that the fear is a bad news. But let's work on that. That's his Mahalach. So even though he's a Talmud of Chaim Meiser and all these others, and he knew them all very tight, and he was friends with the Chavetz Chaim, who praised him to the skies and all the rest of it, but on this he was different than them. Uh, it's a Chalukah Deus which I think brought him a lot of grief. Anyway, he traveled in 1920 to Amsterdam for Mizrahi Convention, after the First World War tried to organize themselves once again into something real, because the First World War destroyed all the fra- uh, um, educational and, and organizational frameworks because of the Holocaust that was the First World War, even though it's nothing like the Holocaust of the Second World War. And he gave a speech there, and he was a tremendous speaker. I forgot to say this. In addition to being a huge Lamdan, he happened to be an excellent, excellent speaker. Uh, more on that in a moment. And he blew him away so much with the speech. This was in, in, in Amsterdam that the Mizrahi guys from who were attending from Antwerp, which is not far away. Amsterdam is in, in the Netherlands, and the, Antwerp, of course, is in Belgium, right nearby, uh, relatively speaking. So they said, we want you for the Rov, because we need a guy like you who clearly is from, is a big Tamakacham, but knows how to speak, and clearly the fact that you're a Zionist shows you that you're like a middle, you know, you understand the now I'm from. Uh, and he took the job, and therefore for the next 15 years, he was the rabbi, the Rav of Antwerp, uh, which is just interesting, because Antwerp is Belgium, but the Jews there ain't Belgian. You know, there are some Belgian Jews, let me put it this way, the history of Belgium, it used to be called the Austrian Netherlands, and the Spanish Netherlands, in which no Jew was allowed to live at all. So the only time you had legal residence for the Jews was like starting in the 1800s. So it's all new communities. But Antwerp, of course, took off because it's a port city, and second of all, because of the diamonds. And so the Jews flocked in there from all over the place. I wouldn't call it a Litvish city, but it was a, a mixture with a lot of the Polish and Hungarians and so forth. And uh, they weren't Satmar or anything like that. And said they wanted a from situation, and he was very successful uh, as the Rav of Antwerp. I wish I knew more about the history of Antwerp in the 20s and 30s. I never found a good book on the subject or somebody. There's a Belgian guy, a guy who writes about it, but I can't read the Flemish, you know. Um, and usually the most treatments of Antwerp are very superficial. I've never been in Belgium. I wanted to go, and it wouldn't be for the corona. By now I had a whole project to do England and Holland and, uh, and Belgium. That would have been a certain trip. Me and Ari Elba were talking about it. Uh, but now for the corona, killed everything, as you know. Now that it's starting to stop, I think, you know, maybe in the future. So I never was in Antwerp, even though I'd like to be. And um, and he, uh, what do you call it? He, he built up this, Then shall I say, the non-Agoda part, you know. And so he was a rope there, and he set up the community, you know. And, and, and he did what an Eastern European rope was trained to do, which they couldn't do in America because of separation 
of the church and state and the radical autonomy of each synagogue. You organize one Vatakasha for the whole city under you. You want organize the Chinech, the Erev, the Beisden, the Gitin. Uh, you, you fight for Shabbos. You know, all that kind of stuff within a communal framework. And if what I read is true, then he was pretty successful in moving things to the right, shall we say, and uh, fixing up the, uh, shall I say, the uh, the missing parts of the wall of Yiddishkeit. In other words, a classic type of Rabbanus of the old school when it's successful, that it's not a partisan thing per se, but you get the whole community involved, and that means a lot of fundraising, and he made day schools, and a yeshiva of some sort or other, I don't know what kind of yeshiva, but I know he made a day school, now, they're Mizrahi. Okay, so it's from a Zionist. Uh, this ticked off the Haredim, but there weren't many over there. Not not over there. And so, to get somebody from nothing in Mizrahi was like big. And again, he was this uh, tremendous speaker, so whenever he went to a Zionist convention or a Mizrahi convention, because he got very involved, excuse me, in the politics of Zionism. Uh, the 1920s and 30s is when Zionism took off in the sense that the British had made the Balfour Declaration. And starting from 1920, Palestine was a British mandate with the official purpose of implementing the Balfour Declaration. Uh, the British didn't do that, but that was the official Zach. And so from, let's put it this way, that was a big step forward than anything else in history where Eretz Yisrael is being developed in some sense, again, not what it should have been, nowhere near that, but in some sense, as a Jewish homeland. Um, and, you know, they let very few people in at that time. There were a lot of problems. But on the other hand, the glass is also half full. And so, you know, somebody like this would be, uh, you know, very involved in Zionist affairs. There were huge fights among Zionism in 1920s and 30s. And, uh, yeah, that's a whole discussion by itself. In, uh, fights in many ways, the socialist versus the capitalist, Jabotinsky versus Weizmann, and Ben-Gurion, and a lot of uh, big and, and, and complicated fights. You, you need like a scorecard. And he was an active participant in all this Zionist, all this Zionist politics is interesting. I remember in the 30s he wanted to go with Jabotinsky and join the revisionists because they insisted on one Eretz Yisrael and break off from the Zionist movement. He wanted the Mizrahi to go this direction. And the other Mizrahi leader said, hold your horses. You know, In general, I wouldn't call him a typical Mizrahi leader. I think he was out in his own uh, uh, pasture uh, because he had a lot of ideas the others didn't agree with. One of the ideas, which is totally understandable, was he wanted to um, reconcile, if I can use that word, with Chaim Weiser, who was his Rebbe. So Chaim Weiser, head of the Gouda, Chaim Weiser unconditionally blasted the Mizrahi. Uh, that's one of the reasons Chaim Weiser was was a, a, a loser in the in the election for the chief rabbi of Vilna in the late twenties. You know he was strongly political in that regard, and therefore Chaim Weiser's main lieutenant, the Chazanish, was like that. As we shall see, that affected the story when they all moved to Israel. And so a lot of politics over here. Now I can't give you all the details because this is just a a relatively short podcast. I got to watch myself not to go for four hours. Uh, but this is what was going in the twenties and thirties, and Rabbi Emil was always the leader of the group in the Mizrahi that was trying to negotiate a common uh, agenda with the Aguda. Because he wanted 
there were some like that. There weren't a whole lot, but there weren't a small amount either of people who said the Agun and Mizrahi shouldn't be fighting each other. They should join together on a joint program because they have so much in common. The whole world is full of Trev and the whole world is full of Kfira. Um, the, uh, the, the, what, what combines the Agun and Mizrahi is much bigger. What unites them is much bigger than what divides them. And so why should we make the primacy over the part that divides us? Um, let's make it the stuff that unites us. So Elu Elu did with Kim Chaim. He couldn't get Rechaim Moser to see it that way. And I remember seeing years ago in the Hebrew College, there's a book that has all the, um, very interesting, all the reports of the negotiations over the course of the 1920s and 30s. So notice, let's put it this way. If you were Rechaim Moser, then you were in more or less constant um, communication with the other side, trying to find common ground, which they never did find, to unite the Agunah Mizrahi around basic Torah mitzvahs. Uh, and uh, Rabbi Avil, Amil was, was the, the leader of the other side, the Mizrahi side, because he had a special kesha with Rechaim Moser. He had been in his, in his kolel and his kibbutz, and they, they were tight, even though they obviously strongly disagreed on this business. And I would say in general that there were chalukadeus between the, the Rebbe and the Talmud. Okay? Between the Rebbe and the Talmud. Uh, this is very litvish. You wouldn't find this in the Hasidic world. But you would over here. And uh, we'll see. It was a serious business. Now, uh, I'll say it again. He was a supporter of Jabotinsky. It was like, it was like wild. Uh, so in the midst of all this, he published a lot of Sfarim. Uh, first of all, the world being what it is, the most thing that people were interested in were his sermons, his drushas. Yeah, it's called drushas el ami. Uh, these be wildly popular. I have a set from Rabbi Bach who passed away long ago with Rabbi Meishol. Uh, was a big, very big Tamil He used to be a, a favorite among people. I never could get into. I don't know. You know, it's written very well and all the rest of it. It doesn't touch a button with me. I, I you know, I don't know why. Uh, although, to tell you the truth, because of this podcast, I open up one or two. It's not bad. You know, maybe now that I'm older, it appeals to me more. The Drosh SLME, it's all on, uh, online, uh, if, if, that, if you're interested. And uh, it's a very clear style. And he has a certain mahalach, you know, a certain way of, of talking. And uh, he was considered perhaps the number one, certainly in the top two or three uh, darshaners of 100 years ago. Certainly, without question. And they're not, you know, populistic things, and they're not, you know, uh, what shall I say, uh, you know, like the medieval style, in which you build around muscles, all they're very direct. You see? Clearly a very direct kind of uh, uh, person. We're dealing with somebody who's a gigantic Tamachachim who called her a call. I mean, I don't say that lightly. You understand? I mean, you know, he knew Babli, Shalmi, Sifra, Sifri, Sri, Rishon, Machron, I don't say that lightly. And he's a person, super as we shall see, from the very inner Nakuda of the Litvish Alumdisha world. Okay, as you see from the people you learn by. So, uh, people, you know, as I said before, uh, he was really big on the sermonizing part. And uh, if you're interested in this at all, to my surprise, I saw, because I was looking for the, the other book, which I'll talk about in a second. And uh, his drushes are online in the Safaria. <laughs> right? You just do Rav Amil in English. They have all of his books. Now, in Hebrew, of course. Not translate. You can't translate this stuff. 
And, you know, he's got on, like, for example, I'm looking at the page here online in the Sfaria, in uh, the Drusha Salami, which is entitled Sermons Unto My People. One is the High Holidays, in which they have 35 Drushas. One is the Three Festivals, in which they got 25 Drushas. One is Hanukkah Purim and Special Shabbos. They have those Drushas. It's just hard to know which one is, is which. I'm not going to go and, uh, you know, pull them all out or something like that. This one from Precious Para the other day was Precious. You know, and he, he, like I said before, he spoke in a way that worked for the Balabachim and, uh, and the public in those days. Uh, in, in a very uh, high level, I would say. Okay? Very high level. For some reason, I have a book, Yuktan Shal Darshan. It usually goes into all the guys that were big Darshan. I don't know why he leaves them out. Because he clearly was, you know, head and shoulders among you know, more than most of these guys. Uh, that's, that's what most people say. But I do have to tell you, it never turned me on. You know, it's, 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 it's a matter of taste. I like the kind of Drusha books I like. I actually like the Baroque ones, you know, Zarya Figo and all that, and the Abishwitz. But, you know, teach his own. He has also Hegyono Telami, which is for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, those kind of things. And he has one about Linavuchi Kufa. We'll, we'll talk about that. He clearly had a high opinion of himself. Justly so. Justly so. Uh, and, I mean, let's put it this way. He must have known most people know a lot less than him. <laughs> And he has a thing, Lenevuchi at Kufa, where he tries to do his own Marnevuchim, so to speak, homiletically, and tries to uh, explain Jewish history and all this sort of thing. Uh, obviously, for from people who are having spakers. Believe me, there's always a ton of from people that have questions and spakers out there. I get a ton of these every two days on the email. And I ain't nowhere of a meal or something. I'm just saying, you know, people write me. You know, there's a lot of speakers out there. He thought he could be like the Rambam because the title, the Nebuchia Tukufa, is like more Nebuchim, you know, those who are uh, perplexed because of Tukufa. Remember, the 20s, the 30s, these are like the peak years of uh, of doubt, I would say, and influenced by European civilization and that sort of thing. In my opinion, the Holocaust, you know, popped that particular balloon. Not among all, but, you know, to a lot of people, really popped that balloon. Uh, but the balloon was still w- alive and well when he wrote his stuff. I don't know how many people you persuade through eloquent rushes. And, you know, a guy like him, to be really successful in doing Marnabucham, needed a college education. I mean, he, let me put it this way. He was a genius. So if he would have gone to college and got a PhD in philosophy, which is probably what he would have gone for, I, I honestly, without, you know, without uh, exaggerating, I think he would get a Nobel Prize. I mean, he was that good. But instead, he was like, all these sheep, you know, an autodidact, so he picked up, you could tell he doesn't get his history always right. You know how that works. You know, when you when you learn by yourself from books, and a couple of the philosophy things, you know, it's yeshivish, you know, it's yeshivish. But as yeshivish rabbis went, he was extremely broad-minded, extremely broad in terms of his knowledge and education. Okay? Uh, that is what it is. You know, there's autodidact, and then there's is actually college educated. Uh, I'm talking about especially graduate school. But whatever the case is, no question he was a very impressive person. And that's why they took him to be the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. The famous... Uh, uh, Tel Aviv, of course, started in, in the early 20th century and started growing, growing, growing. Uh, they didn't really have a rov. It's funny to think this way. The first people in Tel Aviv were not exactly from 
But after a while, all kind of people started moving there, including from. And when I say from, I mean regular from, you know, I don't necessarily mean, uh, you know, super black hat or anything like that, although you had that too. But just a regular, um, I'll use the word Mizrahi type, because that's exactly what we mean over here, which is, you know, you wanted basic Kehillah, the Kashrus, the Shabbos, the Yontav, all the rest of it, but we're not talking about a, a whole Kazanish type community at all. And Tel Aviv started as a, as a, as a uh, what, what, what shall I say, non from uh, place. They, they, they founded the first super secular um, gymnasiums there. I mean, you know, in other words, what we'd say today, college. You know, in, in Europe, they have a different system. The gymnasium is like a, uh, not it's not a place in America. For my American listeners who say gymnasium, we think it's a place to go to workout, get a physical workout. It's not like that at all. It's an educational type institution, which I would describe as a combination of high school and college, up to BA. So you end up with a BA, and after that, you go to university, which would be like graduate school over here. Uh, so you already had a, I forget, Herzliya school, I think it was. That's where they really trained the generation of the Israeli leaders, you know, the younger ones. And the Mizrahi, from day one, was trying to compete and make Tachamoni, have a, have a Mizrahi school that, you know, at least you weren't learning Kafira. <laughs> at least you learned that outside of school, not in school. <laughs> and uh, it was a whole mess. And finally, in the early 20s, they got a Rav to be chief rabbi of Tel Aviv to organize it, at least as well as the European community can be organized. Dada Lubavitcher, by the way, right? Aaron said, who was... Uh, is that, uh, people don't know this whole Tkufa. Uh, uh, I forget his first name. Chaim Aronson or something like that. Moshe Aronson. He was a Lubavitcher, a Rav, a Chashva Rav in Russia before the First World War and all that sort of thing. Uh, as a matter of fact, he was Rav in Kiev, where the war is now. He was the Rav... Of Kiev, even though Kiev wasn't a, a total Chabad community, but you know, let's put it this way: the, the Chabad that's there is not coming from nowhere. And uh, he knew Russian and so forth. And he was a big Zionist, so it's interesting. He had a Chabadnik, and he was a big Zionist because some of these rabbis said like this: "Listen, we need Eretz all We need a Jewish state." The anti-Semitism was coming over here, and everybody's going to get killed. They weren't wrong; they were right. Um, and he eventually, after the First World War migrated to Tel Aviv, but he became the Rav there. And he tried his best to organize everything. And he started even a little yeshiva and a day school. Little, little, very little. He used to call it Yeshiva Tel Aviv, you know. Uh, which was in a shoal. So you have a big city, Tel Aviv, but there's no real chinuch of any dynamic quality. But he tried his best. Uh, and then he died in the 30s. And the question is, who should replace him? So this is a very interesting shtella of... Uh, Antwerp was a fairly large community, about 30,000 Jews. That's quite large. And he was the Rav, uh, Rav Emil in that rather large community of the city. And it was a prosperous city, too. And the Jews, you know, controlled the diamond business like they still do. And he got, by the way, he's the one who got the the diamond uh, industry and everything closed on Saturday. You know I mean, he was an impressive guy. You know, he didn't happen overnight. You know, they weren't Hasidim at that time. They were Jews. And it took a lot of persuasion to say this is not something you should do on Saturday and, you know, the guy may have their day off, we should have our day off and all that kind of talk. So he, he got a lot done. And, and by the way, he also made a good kashras in Antwerp, you know. So, I mean, he did a lot of work. I'm not doing justice to the time he spent in Antwerp. You know, he, he did a lot to build the city in terms of Yiddishkeit. <laughs> but, so now they say like this, 
Tel Aviv, I think by the time we're talking about it, was almost 100,000. That's perhaps the number one city in the world other than Yerushalayim, Jewish-wise. And Rabbi Aronson died. He was an old man. So who should he get? This is the famous uh, tryouts of the three giants, the three biggies. Uh, he tried out Rabbi Meal, our hero. Rabbi Herzog tried for it. And J.B. Salvechi tried for it when he was young. Salvechi was later in YU. Uh, so <laughs> let's put it this way. That's three geniuses. <laughs> you get it? Those are three A-plus candidates. Each one in his own way. Even though Salvechi was young at that time, he was very young. Nevertheless, he was a genius already in learning. Uh, Rav Herzog, it goes without saying. I think you know that. And Rav Amil. So all three of them were like very big in this. They had quite, quite a thing to, to, to choose from. You know, quite a thing to choose from. I think, I'm going to say something that sounds funny, but I don't mean to sound funny. If you want to do a great movie or a great play, perhaps, or something like that, somebody would do the research you could have a great play about the tryouts. Here you are in 1935, I think, and it's Tel Aviv. And, you know, here comes the young Rabbi Salvechev. And here comes uh, Rabbi Herzog. And here comes Rabbi Emil. And Emil won. He knocked the other two out. Mainly because he was actually an active member of the Mizrahi party. Now, it's also true that he was a fantastic speaker. And he had a tremendous reputation from, you know, over there. And Rechaim Meiser backed him. Because if you're going to have Mizrahi guy, you know, he's the one to get, and so forth and so on. If you ask me a question, who is bigger in learning, Rav Amil or, or Rav Herzog, I don't know even how to answer that, but there were two giants. Get it? Two giants. I don't know how exactly he fit with Salvation there, but he's also a giant. So all I'm saying is, it must have been a very interesting uh, uh, Prabha season. You know, it's not like an American synagogue where you get three guys, four guys. Each guy comes to the skull and residence and that sort of business. I mean, here you're talking about Salvation. You're talking about uh, Herzog. You're talking about Emil. I mean, there's three biggies. And they all were very good speakers. But I would imagine, based on reports, that Emil was the biggest, the, the, the best at orators. Maybe I'm wrong. Best at orators. Anyway, he got the job because he was a real, the most, I would say the most Zionistic of them. Now, uh, at the time I'm talking about Salvation was not an active Zionist. And if Herzog was a Zionist, but I would say uh, not in a very partisan way. Not in a very partisan way. And Ramil was, as I said before, he was actively involved in Mizrahi politics. I, he lived a little bit in his own world. I shouldn't say that, but he writes all these newspaper articles that Zionist movement is wrong, the Mizrahi should be the leader of it not just a follower, and they should reorganize the Zionist movement that, uh, you know, put the from in charge. I mean, it, it, it's crazy. <laughs> that was not happening in the 1920s and 30s. I'm not exactly sure, you know, how he, how he figured that would happen. But that's the type of guy he was. He was very active in, in a practical way. You understand? So he became the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv until he died. That's like, that, uh, I think it's 1935 to 46. So, you know, 11 years, a decade. Okay. That means he was there during the Holocaust. That's what that means. Now, he worked uh, to build up in Tel Aviv whatever he could. Uh, let's put it this way. You had a Rav Rashi over there who was a gonadir. So, I mean, when he ran the Bezden, it's a Bezden. Um I don't know what he did with the Kashrus. I don't know that. But uh, he 
just like in Antwerp, said like he was smart enough to know that the Iker is chinuch. That's not all he did, but he knows Iker is chinuch. If you don't educate the younger generation, it ain't going anywhere. By the time we're talking about, already from Antwerp, you can see that a person like him was roughly speaking into Torah Mata. You know, roughly speaking. I don't know if he added all, all ice garbage or whatever, but basically, if you just have only Torah, you're going to only appeal to a very small group. If you want to appeal to a much larger group, you need like an American day school sort of thing. Maybe with a better limited coach, whatever, but you know, that kind of model. And that's what he did. So without going all through the technical institutional history, those who can want to pursue that can do that. He made his famous Yeshiva's Rav Mil, Yeshiva's Yeshiva Chadash, which means he amalgamated the existing Yeshiva Rabbi Aronson together, took them years, and they made a high school and then a Yeshiva and a day and, and, and elementary schools. And, uh, you know, he to, to build it up that way, you know, to, to build up, to build up the, 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 the um, a young population of what you and I would call today day school graduates. Because you and I know today that the whole Yiddish guy, certainly in America, has come from the day school graduates. Without the day schools, there would be nothing. Now, I'm not saying the day schools is enough, but nevertheless... It's what they call a necessary, even if not sufficient, condition. Without the day schools, for boys and for girls, so he made one for boys, made one for girls, you know, the Yishma Chadash, uh, with, like you have in America, you have your high school rebame and all that kind of stuff, together with Limuri Chol, however they did it, uh, you're not going to, you, you, it's going to be a very tiny population, you're going to be able to draw. Um, this whole Mahalach that I just said, that you need a combination of what we're used to in America, day schools as opposed to Torah only. As you know, today is um, is an American thing, but not an Israeli thing among the Haredim. Correct? In Israel, you don't have hardly uh, schools that have both English and Hebrew, as we say it in this country. Uh, in Israel, you have Torah only. Uh, right? You know, with the rarest of exceptions. And this was the deliberate policy of the Haredi Gedon. Uh, they don't want Limurichol. Uh, it's, it, matter of fact, the more education you have, the worse it is. It'll screw up your Hashkafas. It'll be Matam to Misalev. That's their Hashkafa. So if I can posit two opposites, two people who came to Palestine at the same time, A versus B, the two people who emigrated more or less in the same time, as we know from looking back in retrospect, it's almost 90 years, the Chazanish kind of prevailed uh, for the most part. In other words, in terms of dynamic, dynamism, passion, that kind of business, the whole Chazanish Mahalach, however it filtered down, became the Israeli Mahalach, in which Limudi Kodesh should not be contaminated by any exposure to Limudi that basic idea. And if somebody does it, you know, as a, a, a one-time, you know, this person does it, that person, you know, exceptionally, or if there's some real reason, all right, so you, you, it's like a bit of it, okay. And you, you know, you do it like, you know, it's like a mistress and not married, you know, in other words, you, you, you're, not, you're not proud of it and so forth. So it's an attitude thing. So we want, even if somebody goes to college and becomes a Nobel Prize 
physicist, he's going to be machnia himself in Hashkafalized to Yeshiva world. Okay? That is what the Chazanish and that group wanted. Rabbi Meir stood at the opposite side where he said, Torah is a good thing. He didn't use these words, but that's what it boiled down to. And we want to raise, hopefully, a, a, a generation of thousands and thousands and thousands of kids who'll go through what we call in America day school, and then afterwards they'll go to yeshiva. He said like this, we should have, again, he didn't use these words, we should have something like a YU here, uh, the yeshiva and a university, and he even wanted to make that um, that the, the, the new yeshiva, the, the new rabbis should have both a from a, a, a Torah education and a secular education too. I won't necessarily say you need smicha plus a PhD, something along those lines. Oh my Lord, that sent Rechaimizer up the uh, up the, uh, the, the wall, and um, this was considered a super big danger. So if you want to go to the politics of yesteryear, you're talking about the 1930s particularly. One of the big items you see from all Rechaimizer's letters, back and forth, Chazanish and others. He was terrified that they shouldn't bring what we would call a rabbinical seminary model. Perhaps I can say, you know, why you model in the sense of have English and Hebrew to Israel. He thought it's bad enough we suffer in Chutzlars with the model of Torah Mata, Torah Derech Eretz, which he considered a big bidiyev. I'm talking about Chaim Meiser. You know, it's okay for the Yekis because the whole situation was bad anyway. But the whole thing is a super bidiyev. And uh, if you ask from Chaim Meiser, it should be Torah only, and don't be contaminated by Limudi Chol. If you go out in life, you have to get a job, you'll pick up whatever you need to pick up, like that. Not but we, today we call it the Haredi model. Okay? The Haredi model. Now, it's very interesting because, um, as you know, this, this triumph, there were multiple moves in the 1930s by well-meaning people to set up, like I would say, some kind of a YU type situation, there's this role to normalize Limunichol within the yeshiva system. Because the people we're talking about were all from. <clears throat> there was, for example, uh, repeatedly, uh, to, well, let me start from the beginning. <clears throat> the first guy who wanted to do this was Hildesheimer, <clears throat> the son of the famous Israel Hildesheimer. These are very from people in Berlin. When Hitler came to power, he said, it's not going to last here anymore. The Oldesheimer Seminary, if you listen to my talk, but you probably know it anyway, was indeed um, a seven-year program, something like this, in which you got a PhD while you were learning your Lamuni Kodesh. That's the Yekisha model. Okay? And they were successful in their way. Chaim Meiser thought this is just terrible. Maybe for the Germans, because you have the Haskala there and so forth, but nowhere else. You see? Uh, when Hitler came to power in 1933, so you could see that the future for the Hildesheimer Seminary in Berlin, which is a very firm place, was uh, was not good. It's doomed. You know, German Jewry doomed sooner or later. And the son of Hildesheimer, I think Mayor Hildesheimer, wanted to move the Hildesheimer Seminary to Eretz Yisrael, to Tel Aviv, not to Yushalayim, because there, Mayor Sharma would freak out. But with the Tel Aviv, the idea would be, remember, I want to say this, the Hildesheimer Assembly was a, a good institution, 
Maybe people don't know that it was not a Mizrahi institution. It was an Agun institution. They were in the Mitzvah Snolia Torah, believe it or not, W.C. Hoffman and people like that. Okay? Uh, this is the time when the three Asian was giving the shear there. Just to give a perspective. So Mayor Hildesheim, with the best intentions in the world, said, let's move the seminary from Berlin, where there's no future, to Tel Aviv, which will be the Jewish homeland, and we'll train modern Rabbanim to be for those communities that want modern Rabbanim. And when I say modern, I don't mean modern in left-wing sense, but they'll be able to have and they'll be a good example for the Balabatim, and they'll win the respect of the younger generation, hopefully of the non-from as well as the from, and that will make things good in Eretz Yisrael. Oh boy, Chaim Moser blew a gut, and he basically called the guy and he says, forget it, this is a bad idea, do not do it. Do not do it. It was bad, you know, what your father did back in Germany was good in its time, and so forth and so on, but what's good over there would be bad over here, it would be a really terrible idea. And mind you, the mayor of Tel Aviv gave, was going to give him a free campus, you know what I'm saying? No, they thought it's a great idea. But Hillesheim was a from guy, it was in a good thing, he was a from guy, and he said, I guess, if the Gedolim say not to do it, then I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you know, it was a very bitter pill for him. But he said, you know, B'chaim Moiser was a B'chaim Moiser at that time. And if he said not to do it, I'm going to listen to Das Torah. It's actually a, a very interesting, you know, Kiddush Hashem of a certain sort. Right? Then, so, you know, they, he said, woo, that's over. And then I remembered the Hebrew University. When they started the Hebrew University in 1925, they had a Machlaka of uh, Department of Jewish Studies. And they still do. They're very impressive in this way, academically. They wanted to say, let's have a rabbinical seminary associated with the Hebrew University. A from. You know who pushed it? A Simcha Asaf. Who again was a from guy. In other words, the people I'm talking about, were. you're not talking about Avi Weiss or anything like that at all. Not at all. You know, they want to move things to the left and so Not at all. They really were high-minded people, but Chaim Meiser and, and those who listen to this say it's a terrible idea, and that didn't happen either. Well, guess what? Uh, when Rav Amil came to Tel Aviv, he said, maybe we should do it somewhere here, under my under my control, and I'll make sure it's kosher. Oh, my Lord. Chaim Meiser went crazy. If you look in, I'm just looking here in the Parador, uh, in, uh, you know, the, the from... Uh, multi-volume uh, bio of the Chazanish, which is very partisan too. In the last volume here, the Mezima means the plot. And this is in 1939. So in other words, it's on the eve of the Second World War. It's Yud Gimel Tammuz. So when did the Second World War start? In September. So let's say in Elul. So weeks before Hitler's about to enter Poland and wipe everybody out. Chaim Reis is writing with the Chavetz Chaim, saying, to the Chazanich, I mean, saying, oh my goodness, uh, I heard from Ron Cutler, Chini Di Ron Cutler, Sherotson, Haravagon, Marbamil, Liyasid, Beis Medish, Larbonim. He wants to make a, a YU, so to speak. I, I shouldn't use the word YU, but I, I'm doing this in American audience, I understand. Like a Hildesheimer seminary, and they want me, Reb Chaim Reis, to protest against this. But Reb Chaim Reis said, I guess, I don't do this from, from hearsay. I will tear him no dati, other Reb Adiyak Monatiz Asmizet. But since I don't know all the particulars, eh, you know, I don't want to say something against Rabbi Emil, who I respect, unless I find that this is true, in which case I will. And therefore he's asking the Chazanish, 
find out, you know, what the truth is, and ask uh, Israel Zalman Meltzer, and so forth and so on. So in other words, uh, his, uh, our hero's uh, hashkafas, shall we say, just simply didn't sink with that of the uh, Haredim, okay? Uh, because they wanted, and they got it, that there should be zero limunichol, or if there's any, it should be marginal. And, you know, like on the side, and, uh, like I say, super bedievin, and so forth and so on. And they and they have succeeded. So, uh Kanyevsky, who passed away recently, is a perfect example I'm talking about, which is you could live your whole career there with zero limunichol. But that, that's what it was, okay? And it worked out, you know. Nobody foresaw that the Israeli government would bankroll these guys. It, it, it worked out. So, you know, if you're that way, you say like this, you know, you learn it this way. But Rabbi Amil wasn't like that at all. And he said, we need a day school like we have in America from K through 12, so to speak, for boys, for girls. Then you need a seminary for girls, a college for girls. You need a college from, uh, for boys plus Limud uh, Kodesh, so, you know, they can learn half a day, and then eventually those that come out with a smich will be, will be the Rabbonim and the others will be the Balabatim, Lom de Torah, and so on and so forth. You know, it's not a bad program. Uh, but of course, as we all know, uh, the Holocaust came and that just, uh, you know, shattered everything. And he writes about it in his books and uh, uh, turned everything upside down. And whatever whatever the plans were, you know, uh, <laughs> the the Holocaust, you know, uh, just shook everything up. Now, during the war, Ramil was the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, you know, hot solid work, raising money, all that kind of stuff. But you couldn't do much. The Jews in Israel were kind of helpless. You understand? I mean, they got over, you know, if they could sneak somebody out, they sneak somebody out. But you, you and I know it's, 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 it's a needle out of a haystack. Hitler killed six million. Yeah. So who could they save? And uh, the result was, you know, that you know it was a bitter time. At the same time, World War II was actually very good for the Jewish community in Palestine because everybody made a lot of money. It's a, it's funny. Uh, the British Army had it as a major base. I got news for you: when you have a base of soldiers, they're coming in and spend their money. And so, uh, and a lot of Jewish firms supplied the British and the Americans. By the way, America had a, um, a rest and relaxation base right next to Tel Aviv and things like this. Because part of the war was fought in the Middle East. So it was a weird time. Tel Aviv was flourishing. Uh, the the P- Jewish Palestine was flourishing. The Arabs did not act up during the Second World War. There was a big intifada up to the Second World between 1935 and 1939. And then they just uh, they, they stopped fighting. I think, in my opinion, they were waiting for Hitler to win. And then why should we lift a finger? Then once Hitler wins, if Rommel breaks through, then they'll kill all the Jews for us. But either way, whatever the case is, it was actually safe to tra- travel around Palestine in the 1940s in a way that it wasn't safe in the 1930s. Or to be very exact, it was safe to go from 1940 to 45 in a way that wasn't safe 1935 to 1940. Or 39. It's just, just interesting. I mean, there are many books in this subject, but that's the period in which he lived. And, you know, he was a Mizrahi guy, so he tried to build the Zionist movement and all that kind of stuff. And... You know, being a rabbi of Tel Aviv, he had a lot of shuls and all, so he ran around giving shurim all day long. He gave shurim in the, the Chevron yeshiva and in his yeshiva, and, you know, all the, you know, the yeshiva world, because he was super into lumbus. 
And, uh, you know, he did like that. Uh, when the war was over, uh, so this was the, 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 the peak period when you move to the establishment of the state of Israel. So the war ended for Hitler in May of 45. As you know, by May of 48, they already declared the independence. Isn't that right? Again, the war ended early in May of 45. Three years later, almost to the day, Ben-Gurion was proclaiming the, the state of Israel. So it, it's it's a three years as Hatzik Gekocht in Eretz Yisrael, you know, getting ready for, you know, the, the future independence of the state, the war against the Arabs, the whole nine yards. This is when the Irgun was going around blowing people up in the King David Hotel and all this stuff. It was quite a time, right? And uh, the population was increasing everywhere. The Jews went from 450,000 in 1938 to like 650,000 in 1948, you know, like that. So it was a, you know, very wild time. And so somebody who was as active as our hero had a full field of work. Just running a basin in a city like Tel Aviv is like crazy that can, you know, you know, take up all your time. And if you're the type of person who likes to be a Magad Shir, which he did on a very high level, to go around and give Shirem, they used to have Hechel Talmud Yeshiva in Tel Aviv. And uh, like I say, we give Shalom to give in Hebron, and of course in KBY and those kind of places. So you could, you could. I've already told two careers in one. Because one thing about Rabbi Meal is he was a little bit like Chaim Meiser in double task, multitasking. You know, he he could uh, because he could also give a, a, these uh, fantastic drushes. So you know, he did a whole lot of things in the rabbinate that usually somebody else would would just specialize in one area. Uh, but he was apparently, you know, strong opinioned, and he was always criticizing the Agoda, I'll use that word, the Haredim, for not being part of what you call the official Jewish community. You can be in the Jewish community like it used to be in in, in, in Poland, Lithuania, and protest against the non-from stuff. <clears throat> uh, let me uh, explain this. Um... In the 19th century, you know something, I'm running out of time here. Let me uh, stop this. I hope I'll remember where to pick this up in a second here. <laughs> okay, let me pick up. I'm going to explain something. You probably don't know. Uh, those of you who are Hersheans, I know I have X number of Yekis listening, so you're famous with Austrit Gemeinde. That's very famous Hersh. But in the 19th century, there was always a big question what to do about the from versus non-from split, which happened everywhere. What In every community, once upon a time, everybody was from, but then not. So what do you do about that within the context of the official Jewish community? Because unlike America, in Europe, there was a thing called the Autonomous Coercive Community, recognized by the state. There was an official thing called the Jewish community, like in America you call it federation, but federation is all voluntary, it doesn't really exist. In Europe, it really did exist. And the question was, everybody in the community, um, every Jew who lived in that town was expected to be, by law, to be a member of that community and pay taxes towards it. Um, not a lot of taxes, but some taxes towards it. So, what do you do about the fact that you have a community which is supposed to be a religious thing, because it's not just there for, for, for administrative purpose, is to promote Yiddishkeit, and yet a lot of people that are Kofrim 
or maybe they're now starting something called Reform Judaism, and they want their own temple, their own shul, which just like the Orthodox should pay out of the community services, so should their stuff. And now you have Avada Kashrus, now they want Avada Treif. You know, whatever it is. You know, how do you deal with it? The Frum had no experience in this because it hadn't happened earlier in history. So this was the big question in the 19th century, what to do about it. Uh, if you lived in Germany and Hungary, there was a big push to simply say, like Samson Rayfield Hurst did, uh, get out of the regular community and make a separate from community. So the only people who can join are people who, by definition, are from. Uh, a lot of people, I think you know this, didn't like the Hershian attitude, the Hungarian attitude. They said that Klal Yisrael itself, that the idea of all Jews being in one framework, is itself a supreme religious value. Now, Hirsch said that's ridiculous. You know, it was when everybody agreed to uh, that, that the Frum is the right way to go. So, um, by that I mean, Hirsch would say, and people like him would say, in economy, in early generations, there always were, in every Jewish community, people who were not Shomer Shabbos, and didn't keep kosher, and so forth and so on. But they were motivated that they weren't right. They didn't say that they're the right ones. They're just saying that's what they do. You understand? So the hierarchy was preserved. You know, that's Klal Yisrael. That the non-former Maida, that the former right, even though the non-from do their own thing. I can't overemphasize that. I think I told you once, it's the famous story <laughs> of Hildesheimer, who had an Orthodox seminary. He was like Hirsch. He says you have a separate community. And they sent, they requested from Hildesheimer back in the 1880s or 90s in Germany, they sh he should send him a, a, a rabbi for their community. The old rabbi was gone. And Hildesheimer said like this, why are you interested in Orthodox rabbi? I know you're a Kehilla. There's not a single Shomer Shabbos. I don't even think there's anybody who keeps kosher. Why do you want an Orthodox rabbi? I'm just interested. Why do you want an Orthodox rabbi? And they said the famous answer. They said, the passengers may be drunk, but the coachman must be sober. <laughs> you get it? So that's the old school. You know, we want a Rav who's a Rav. That doesn't mean we listen to him, but you know, but 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 he at least personifies the right way. You know, nobody keeps kosher, but the rabbi should keep kosher. Nobody keeps Shabbos, but the rabbi should keep Shabbos. You keep Shabbos for us. So that's a very old school type thing, and it's very grounded in Klai Yisrael, in the history of Klai Yisrael. This happened quite a number of times, more than most people realize. But when you started to have in the 19th century, people who said, no, Orthodox Judaism is wrong. Reform Judaism is the way to go. So in other words, Kashrus is wrong. Treif is right. You see, the Torah is not real. It's not a shot that I don't keep it. I don't keep it because it's not there. You see? So that upset the whole hierarchy and made it impossible, the Hersheans argued, to stay in the same community with these guys. But rather, you had to adopt a policy of he like Moshe and the Korach. Okay, none of it. This is what happened in Central Europe when it happened. Even in Germany, I think you know, even in Frankfurt, there were a lot of people who still felt the old way. And in spite of the fact that these, that the other side is not from and reform, it's not the other, they're still Jews. Everyone is a member of Klai Yisrael. Unfortunately, they're lost sheep. They're wandering in the wrong direction. But like a Lubavitcher would say today, they're potentially Shomer Mitzvahs. You know, even the biggest reform rabbi, potentially a Shomer Mitzvahs. Not at the moment. And it's, you know, a long shot. But you have to view it that way. 
uh, this did not prevail, as you know, in, in Central Europe so much. Uh, it didn't, it didn't. But in Eastern Europe, in Poland and Russia and places like that, Lithuania, they felt the non-Hershian way, that the whole Kehillah is Jewish, we have enough trouble from the Russians, the Poles, and the other anti-Semites out there, and we have to hang together for Klai Yisrael. Even though, um, you know, we include in our community communists, socialists, all kind of junk, you know, who certainly don't believe in the existence of God, let alone the Torah, and, you know, things like that. But nevertheless, we're all Jewish. I, we have such unbelievably big chalukadeus on Ikrim. And so what? You see? Now, let's move to Palestine. Especially Palestine under the British, which is in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. And uh, so... The Zionists, if I'll use that term, organized a national kehillah, series of national kehillahs, and one giant national kehillah called Knesset Yisrael. That's what it's called. Eventually, when the state of Israel became a reality, so they called it Knesset, the parliament. But it originally was called Knesset Yisrael. Now, the question is, what should the Haredim do with the Knesset Yisrael? Well, the whole point of Meish Arm and Rechaim Zonnefeld and all the others was, we have to do the Hershey and Hungarian way. He bodily mitoch arazos. Because otherwise the Zionists will dominate us. First of all, it's wrong in principle. And second of all, the Zionists will use this as an excuse to take over our institutions and kill Yiddishkeit, kill the Haredim. Kill Haredism. This was the big fight in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s in Palestine. So, it actually gave an interesting spin because what it meant was that in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, the official Jewish government, the Knesset Yisrael, uh, had no Aguda in it, and certainly no Arabs, so it was Kulo-Zionist by definition. You get what I'm saying? The, 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 the different communities in Eretz Yisrael and Jewish Palestine had elections like they do now in Israel. But instead of electing a Knesset for, to run the country because they weren't a sovereign state, they elected a Knesset uh, with their votes, which met in Tel Aviv, I think, to represent a state within the state because the British let them do that. You know, a certain autonomy, run their own schools, run their own this, run their own that. And that's how the Jewish community developed in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And so they really already had a, a government within a government. And that's why when Israel became a state in 48, they could just, um, you know, it was a seamless transition. They could move from, from a government, within a government to a government. You know, uh, Ben-Gurion didn't have to do nothing. They, you already had a Department of Education, Department of the Treasury, Department of the Interior, Department of this. And, you know, they already had a, a functioning government anyway. They never, they even had a secretly an army, you know, it, was, it wasn't legal, but the Haganah, it was a secret, they even had a Ministry of Defense. So it was a whole state within a state. Um, and they had no Aguda to block them or anything like that. So they had a grand old time. The trouble from Ben-Gurion started when he made a state of Israel, and all of a sudden there's one Knesset, and uh, the Aguda changed its mind and, and decided to, to join, to vote. But prior to 48, they did not. So you had a situation, especially during the 30s and 40s, during the Holocaust, that in Eretz Yisrael, which regarded itself as the only surviving Jewish community, and all the kills in Europe are being literally exterminated. And in Israel, we're fighting, if you're from, the firm are still fighting the, the, the old dumb fights. That's how they saw it. 
Uh, and Rav Emil was always uh, blasting the Haredim. He said, now, you know, it's like rearranging chairs on the Titanic. Now where we all have to be united, they should join the Knesset Yisrael. The Knesset Yisrael is a Zionist thing. It's based on fear. We have nothing to do with it. And so this was the big fights over there. And he uh, strongly criticized them based on what I just told you. They got real angry. The uh, Chazanish, anyway, I say, you know, form, as, as far as I can see, formed a hatred of him. Uh, maybe because of Chaim Oizer's stuff, because of the base Medish Rabbanon. I think for other reasons, possibly as well. As we'll see if I have time to explain. Uh, again, I'm just saying the way I understand it. And uh, a lot of insider baseball today. <laughs> and uh, so in 1946, uh, when he was giving, you know, he wrote all these articles and gave speeches that now that we're getting ready to have a state of Israel, you know, it was, everybody could see it's around the corner sooner or later. Uh, now they definitely should join. And those who, who don't join together and still allow these kind of petty fights to get in there are making a terrible mistake. Um, the Ger Hasim got really angry. Uh, maybe it was also Tommy Khazanish, and they came and interrupted his speeches in Tel Aviv, and, they, and you know, like you like they do sometimes, and cussed him out and called him names. All hell broke loose in the shoal. Uh, fist fights broke out, uh, and they came again and did it, and uh, it was all Shararia, and uh, the Shamas slapped them and so forth. It was a whole business they called the cops, and Rabbi Emil was. Uh, I guess the type who couldn't take that kind of insult, it really got him, gave him a chalisha sadas, and he died. <laughs> That's what happened. They kind of killed him at the age of 64 on the 64th birthday. Shabbos Agono, by the way, this week. You know, I didn't even look at this. I didn't even look on online if they have yard says He's going to be this week. Because it happened right after. The incident was on Shabbos Agono. So imagine a guy's giving a Shabbos Agono speech, and people run in the middle and say, you're a jerk, you're a liar, this, that, and the other. You're a kaifer, who knows what. Uh, and he wasn't thick-skinned enough to say to heck with these guys. I guess that's not who he was. And it really got to him, and it killed him. There are a number of Gedolim that were not thick-skinned, and when they were insulted, it killed him. I remember, for example, the Chassam Sofer's son, uh, Shimon Sofer, who was the Rav in Krakow. The Hasidim, who didn't like him because he wasn't Hasidish, they came and cussed him out on Purim, and he was very refined, you know, Chassam Sofer, you know, very uh, uh, nice uh, Midos, and when he heard this, he gave him a chalisha sedas, and he died from it. You understand? He died from it. So uh, we, <laughs> we have quite a history in uh, in, in, in Klai's role. Uh, so these guys like mur- mur- kind of murdered him. I've heard all kind of rumors they got away with it. Some say they died themselves. Who knows? But this is what happened, and therefore his career came to a, a screeching halt because it is totally unexpected business. Sixty four is not an old age. He clearly could have lived another 10, 20 years, in which case he would have been a major person in Medinat Israel. It'd be just very fascinating to imagine a guy like Ramil with his tremendous kochas uh, being there at the helm uh, in in the 50s, you know, in the Ben-Gurion era and so forth. Uh, I don't know which way it would have gone, you know, but uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a lot of room for speculation on that point. Uh, now, why did I think about him today? Because one of the things that he, he, he wrote, I told you before, he was a great um, orator. And he's all these books on um, drushes, which I say people have used. If you're a rabbi in the rabbinate business, I imagine if you're like in YU program, they, you, you must know about this. Um, his drushes sell on me, Hagiona sell on me, and all that kind of stuff. 
is, you know, a lot of material for rabbis to give drushes if that's what you want to do. Uh, so that's one area. But he was a huge lamdan. Okay? I mean, that doesn't do justice to it. And he did write this book on Kachin early on, and it's read Dark Shal Torah. I've never gotten into that. Yeah, Lomdis. Of the classic literature type of that era. Uh, but he had a grand project. And it's a, it's a weird story, but it's a fascinating story. Uh, he had a grand project based on several, uh, li grand literary project based on several considerations. <clears throat> and he wanted to write uh, a, <laughs> maybe a Mishnah Torah of Lomdis. Maybe that's the right way to put it. A grand work that would summarize and classify all of Lumdus, all of Pilpul. I mean that in the widest sense of the world, which would be a kind of very heavy and thorough, deep introduction to Toshavapeh. But like in a very yeshivish way, not skipping any of the Lumdus at all, the opposite. And he had this plan. He was apparently, as I said before, a multitasker. So all the years since he was a kid, he had in mind to put together a grand work, like be like another Mishnah Torah, so to speak, of a certain sort, if I can use that uh, terminology. And um, he eventually published it during the Second World War. On the eve of the Second World War, during the Second World War, which he called Hamidos Lachikar Halacha, which uh, has always been around. Of all the Lumsha books, I think that's the Cinderella. I think that's the one that's least known, simply because um, the Haredim didn't like him, and therefore he didn't get any kind of, as far as I'm aware, you know, I mean, I don't know the whole world, it didn't get much traction in the yeshiva world, even though it's an amazing work. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. And uh, it's very dense. You know, once in a while I used to read a little bit here and there, but it takes a lot of effort. Uh, it's the kind of thing that you learn with a Harusa. And it's two fat books, maybe three, and a couple thousand pages. I just want you to know what we're talking about over here. And uh, he called Hamidos Lechikra Alacha. And it's super into the classification of different types of pilpul and the lumdas. I don't know if I can do justice to it, but I want to tell you this. And that is that there's a uh, fantastic um, book review of it, which describes the book in, in, in a fantastic way by Zevin. Rav Zevin, in his, uh, you know, uh, what's it called? A Sofimus Forum. Rav Zevin was just like him. He was a big Zionist, a gigantic Tamil but he wasn't the fighting type. Rav Zevin was more, you know, the literary type and so forth. But um, Rav Zevin, of course, was a Chassid, and uh, Rav Meal was, was a Misnagat. But um, he has there uh, this intro to the uh, uh, a book review which is uh, 20 pages or something like that. No, the, the review itself is a masterpiece. But it's, it, it, it takes some going through. This is not easy stuff. But it's a masterpiece of describing what the Sefer is. <clears throat> and basically, uh, Rabbi Meal wrote um, this, this book in which he tried to take all of the Svaris and the Torah down to the 20th century, down to Rabbi Chaim's, who he learned under, I remind you, and the Shemesh Cups, who we really learned under, and classify them in broad sense, the way a, a brilliant law professor would do, 
to enable the average yeshiva guy, I don't know, the average guy is going to go through a book of 2,000 pages, but the average yeshiva guy to say, all right, I went through his book and now I can go through Shas, Bavli, Yushami, all the rest of it, and I'll see how everything fits together. So that's a gigantic, ambitious um, uh, project, okay? Gigantic, ambitious project. And um, he called Hamidos, Lechekar Alocha. You understand what that means? Notice, trying to get all the Chekar Alocha, all the lumdus down the ages, and I mean that in the widest sense. The Pilpot, the lumdus, the Svaris, all the rest of it, what the Midos are. I, I guess what he would call the legal Klolim, um, uh, the legal principles uh, in, into which they fall. So that requires an unbelievably organized mind and an unbelievably encyclopedic knowledge of Kol Tarakula uh, in, in the deepest sense. Um, and I like I say, Zevin is the best way to the introduction over here, although the author himself has an introduction. And it's also a remarkable piece. And uh, he was moved on several accounts, which I find fascinating. First of all, Remember, we're talking about somebody, like I said before, who learned that Belazer tells Rabbi Shemeshkop, Rabbi Chaim Eiser, and, 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 you know, Ragachover and all say, you know, he was in the heart of the heart. And if anybody who understands Lumdus, I mean, this is the guy. And at the time I'm talking about, which is um, late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, the history of the Talmud was in the hands of the Moschilic historians who didn't know what the heck they're talking about. Uh, Isaac Hirschweiss with his Dor Dor Bedarshov. There's a whole literature like this, you don't have to know. Uh, who, who are the professors and so forth, who explained what the Talmud is, what Pilpul is, what Lumdus is, and all the rest of it. And to tell you the truth, these are guys learned a couple years at Hungarian yeshiva is a middle of, you know, uh, uh, Central European yeshiva, Polish yeshivas. They learned a little here, a little there, and all of a sudden you're probably shtick. Uh, think, for example, of somebody like Gretz, you know, who knew even less. And they have all these volumes. And this is how Jewish intellectuals conceived of a Shas and post and Torah Shavuot and the whole rabbinic tradition, the whole tradition of this literature. They got it from those kind of sources. And here's a guy learning yeshivos who says, they don't know what the heck they're talking about. They can't find the rear end of their hands. And it really bothered him because the Torah, as you know, is a usually deep subject. I'm talking about the Shas and Postkim. A usually deep subject, which can be comprehended, but not in a superficial, stupid way. Uh, and you can imagine they gave a nom from spin to everything. You can just imagine. And so I think from a young age, you know, he had a plan to write the true description of the Torah Shabbat Peh, that'll knock all these other guys out and will become the guide uh, for the 20th century. And it'll be a from uh, uh, accurate description of all of Lumdus, which is a gigantic project. My goodness, right? Uh, and he's not, how should I put it over here? He's not shy about, I think this is one of the things that people don't like. I mean, I won't say he boasts, but he had the right to. Uh, he, he's proud of his work, and he talks about the fact that early works he did over here, you know, um, were just a, a little bit of a background over here. But here, I want to say over here, uh, let me find this in this introduction where he says, yeah, here it is. Um, Paul, who called two tzaritzaritz. 
This book I've written, which is a thousand pages, nine hundred pages. It's volume one, uh, three volumes. I've written in, in Avir de Armachim since I came to Eretz Israel in Palestine. So while he's the chief rabbi Telvi, and while he's building the new day school system, and while he's building the Yeshiva Zachadosh, and while he's setting up the Tel Aviv, and while he's doing all the Din Torahs, and while he's running all the Mizrahi politics, and while, you know, all that, like he's a multitasking, he's also spending considerable time to write an unbelievable, difficult safer of a thousand, uh, like I say, the first volume, 900 pages. Uh, he says, and this idea in potential, I started to think about when I was a kid. I started thinking about this project when I was very young. Can you imagine when I was 13 years old? Talmud Bishiva Kadosha Betels. Tells was famous already as the Lomdis. That's Rabbi Shemesh Kap or Blazer Gordon. And Blazer tells her. And I was 13, 14, listening to the Shiurim of all these great Rosh Hashivas, Magad Shiras, which were all based on logic, on, on Svara. And I discerned something that the Rabbim themselves didn't discern. They gave their shiurim on each mesechta. And, you know, the famous uh, Shemans, you know, Shemeshkot, you know, the famous lambdas. Meaning, each sugya, each mesechta had its own famous lambdas. And sometimes, you know, they did like that. And the point was to be that in the shiurim, they, they emphasized the chidushim, properly so. Okay? I mean, this is the shari yosha, you know that. And even though I was young, I started to chop. That in the case of a lot of the different svaras that I heard in my shiurim, they really are part of a certain legal principle. They're just applied in different situations, but they all come to nirkudamerkazes to a central idea. They all revolve around a central notion. They come from this idea. Obviously, the applications are different on the different Gemaras, the different Sugis. But you can organize them under certain Klolim, which, if the student understood that, would make it much easier to understand the Shir, understand the Gemara, understand the Rishonim and the Achronim. That's the basic idea. So at a young age, I started writing up logical klalim, right? In other words, in my mind, uh, as you'll see in a minute, siva, mesova, uh, cause and effect, things like that. When I hear a svar, I would say, you know, what kind of klal does this fit into? And this is the germ of the book, that I'm writing today, he says. I'm concluding today. So in other words, he's talking about stuff he learned in the late 1890s, early 1900s, and it's about 30 years later or so, 35 years later, he's he's writing into a book, okay? And um, the thing is like this. the he, There's a mavo, an introduction, which is extraordinary. Uh, his introduction is a history of lambdas. Literally. Mavo lechekar halacha. 
it's a history of lambdas as he understands it. The the from 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 the from the chumash part. Mahusa pilpul talmudi b'chlal histalshulus apilbum midor vador, and then hafrot vachlola. You know the the individual things and the general things, and the hekish hegioni and he took hegioni, and then he gets to the bavli and yushami because he knew yushami cold, and the different ways you find lumdus and ideas in the bavli verse yushami. Which he has surprising things to say. It just it won't take me too long to go into it. And then Tzvardim, excuse me, Tzarfasim Vasvardim, and then how these ideas played out in the time of the Rishonim, the French and the Spanish, Harishonim Kamalochim. And his whole point was like this. And now we're living in a tremendous age of Kiddush, which was true. And the Kiddush was the Lamda, the Litvish Yeshiva, the Lamdas. He says it's true that it goes back to Arsenai, but the development of it is recent. And, um, so in other words, you have over here a whole separate book by itself, which is 200 pages? Uh, yeah. Yeah, something like that. About 200 pages as, as a mavo. It's a book by itself. Uh, the relationship of lumdus to philosophy, the relationship of lumdus to legal thinking, uh, the different type of lumdus you find out there with the Rishon. It's It's extraordinary. Okay? Now, um, it's long. <laughs> it's the problem. And then he goes into, um, you know, the, the the first of the legal categories that he jumps into, which is mostly Siva Masovov, which is cause and effect. So that's a basic uh, concept. And how do you apply it? And he's into the Siva business as cause. That's, they got uh, wild over this. And, you know, like Siva of Heder of Siva, cause and then when the, when the cause isn't there, or stay Sibos, you know. Or uh, you get the idea. So this is heavy stuff. <coughs> heavy stuff. I like I said before. I've seen it in the past, and it's always like very formidable. Uh, I did pieces, you know, with covers here and there over the years, not much. Now he's like grandchildren of somebody paid the most rough cook, and they put out a very nice edition, good print. No, it's not Nakudas, but it's a good print with very good footnotes. I mean, that makes, in my opinion, that makes it and breaks it. They have very, very good footnotes. Anybody wants to see over here. And as I said before, I was looking around different things for uh, Shabbos Agarol, and I saw, uh, where do I have it in the Keshe's book? Well, I have it, I wrote it down somewhere. Because uh, he's, you know, he, he goes, Hakir uh, is on steroids, you know, because that's, that that was the big thing at that time, all the hakiras. So um, I think everybody, m- most of you listening to this will be familiar. Pesach is around the corner, so when it comes to chometz, it's very famous that they say shnei dvarim in rishus shalom, v'asakoskin rishusam bar rishus ramish bchometz in Pesach. That there are two things that really you don't own it, but the Torah ascribes ownership to you, and that's where you get bittel from. And the first Ron and Sachim and blah blah blah, all that stuff. I don't want to get too technical, but I think you know what I'm talking about. I'm assuming that that uh, the comments is ain't a b'shusa shalom v'asa akasim kilu hu b'shusa. That's in the Gemara. So what does that mean? So here's a typical thing from from Rav Amil. Yesh lachkar ha'im achametz. So again, I'll say it again. Shnei dvarim ain't a b'shusa shalom. So chametz is something which is not in your b'shus because it comes aser b'hanoah already in Arab Pesach. But also a kazakilo rishuso, but the Torah assigns you ownership. Kilo 
of Hibushuso. Uh, and that's why you have to do bittel in order to get rid of the ownership. So what does that mean? Yesh lachkar. Ha'imachomitz aser ba'anoa. Fiyav bishenu b'shuso. Overlove of Balyura. So, snake form in b'shuso, shalom also come kilu b'shuso. The chomitz is aser ba'anoa. That's a fact. And even though the fact that it's aser ba'anoa makes it it's not your b'shuso because it was something it's aser ba'anoa you don't own. Overlove of Balyura. But the Torah, if you don't get rid of it, you don't do bittel, or bedika, a beer, I mean, then you'll be chayiv on Balyura, on owning it. But wait a minute, the Torah deprived you of the ownership. Does that mean that the Chomz is also by Noah, even though it's not your Rishos, you'd nevertheless overown it as if it were in your Rishos? Or does it mean that it is in your Rishos? Or do you say that as far as the Isra Balyura, which is the ownership thing on, on Arab Pesach, it, it's, it's basically um, Kilo, uh, it, it is in your Rishos. What does it mean also come The Torah assigns you ownership to, to it. Does it mean that now you own it or you have a responsibility for it even though you don't own it? I mean, it's a very hair-splitting kind of thing. My Lord, he goes pages and pages and pages on this. For those of you interested in Tafkov Chavav, it's a, you know, uh, and the Nafkamin is over there, as Machlokas Rishon of Aram Barani, Kanachamis, Lokamitzah Balyura, and oh my Lord, I'm telling you, page after page after page, uh, because the question, to put it over here, I'll just read you a, a little paragraph to show you how complex it is, at least in my opinion. I'm not so smart, but, you know, maybe the smart people find this easy. <laughs> in the absence of the effect, even though there is a, there's a cause. So then... Right, it's shlilas hamasovov. Is it that you consider it as if the seba is not there? Oh, shachidishu rakman masovov shloyishav masovov bishasiba kain hoisa. See how complicated it is. V'tzir kozeh yishem b'chametz v'pesach shav rabal yirab bal yamotza. That you know what it means. I'll be shachametz in a brushuso b'tam shalosam rano. We know that the chametz is also rano, so you shouldn't be owning it. But nevertheless, also because of kila brushuso, as we said, right? Kan yish seba shloyishav rano. So the cause is this right So usually you have a situation where if it's Aser it should mean that it's not in your Rishos because you don't own it. And here, right, it doesn't result. The cause doesn't have the, the effect that the cause usually has. As he puts it, I'll be You see, that's the trouble with this book. Only when you he he works like inductively, you know he 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 already knows the the rule and he's speaking in in um, abstract terms. Only then does he get to concrete. It'd be much easier if he went the other way around. At least for somebody like me, you, you, you understand what I'm saying? In other words, the the misovov, there's a seba but not a misovov. There's a cause but not an effect. The cause is iser anah, but the effect isn't there. That you're not chayiv in it because you are chayiv unless you do the beer. So maybe I've gone a little bit too technical for some people. But, and believe me, I just scratched the surface on this. But that's the kind of very complex business he had. And he thought this is going to be the cat's meow. I'm telling you, the introduction, he says, he says, look, the Horbin the is coming to Europe. Uh, I can see he writes it on the eve of the Second World War. Uh, it's going to be bad news. Um, but at least here in Eretz Yisrael, we're doing some, some serious work. And I hold that my thing's going to be amazing. Uh, this could be a turn off, you know. 
You're thinking about your own glory in the middle of the Holocaust? I don't think he meant it that way. And Rav Zevin compares this, he thinks that he got it from the Rambam, because the Rambam, of course, says that Rehuna Nasi wrote the Mishnah because the whole world was falling apart. So knows the you know that introduction Rambam to the Mishnah Torah. Uh, why did Rabbi Yudan Nasi do Eislasa Hashem Why did they write the Mishnah down? Because everything was falling apart, so he had to respond this way. And the Rambam himself says of his own Mishnah Torah that now things are falling apart because the Rambam was convinced in his time it's like a Holocaust happening in terms of of, of learning. There are famous letters from the Rambam where he says it's all over. I'm the last one left, and things like that. In his letter to the Chachmei Luniel and so forth. And therefore he was responding to it by writing a uh, Mishnah Torah. So one gets the the impression, at least I do, that our hero figured the whole world of Lithuania is just being wiped out, which it was. And so I'm, you know, like the Rambam, I'm a Sephardi exile from Spain. I'm now over here, but I knew all the Lomdas. I'm going to try to explain it in an organized way uh, so that in the future all the Lomdas will not be lost. But people understand the system. Now, it's his own Kiddush of how the system operated based on the Klalim, but uh, that's what he did. So, let me put it this way. You can say, this is unbelievable, especially it's three volumes, so it's, it's, it's huge. And he gets into, like I say, all these extremely um, abstract uh, ways of thinking, which is great, you know. But like I said, if you're not a big Talmud Chacham, you're going to find this a very challenging uh, text, unless you do what I just said, which is walk backwards. Don't read his first paragraph. Read the second paragraph first, and then read the first paragraph. And then it'll make sense. You know, because you read Hasiba, Bishlil, Samasov, you know, what's flying until you see, oh, he means like this. And then you go back and then you see what he's talking about. That was my experience in this. Like I say, I'm not the biggest guy. That's my experience in this. But it's an amazing work. Okay? It's extraordinary work. And the most rough cook did a, 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 a cracker job. job. They have a nice, um, what's the right word at the end? Um, uh, index, I guess you'd say, of the basic ideas. But it's not an easy thing to crack. On the other hand, you could get if if you like Lamdas, I mean, if that's what you like, it's it's quite remarkable. In my years in Yeshiva, I don't I don't think I ever heard it mentioned once. I think because he must have had a bad reputation since he seems to have clashed with because the Chazanishin liked him or something like that. But you know the Gedolim did hold for him. It's a famous thing. Uh, just give me an idea. It's a famous thing that when he died in forty six suddenly. So the question is, who's going to be the next chief rabbi of Tel Aviv? Which is a big job. And Rabbister Zalman Meltzer told a guy, a Mizrahi guy, he says, I want you to go and try to work, in my opinion, get try to get for Diana Abramsky from London. And tell them, Abramsky's also a good speaker, and he's also a gigantic Talmud Chacham. Of course, he's not in the Madrega of Rabbi Meal. You know, nobody is. <laughs> That's what he's about, Cheskel Abramsky. You know, he's not like Amkin like that, but still, he's very good. He'll be fine for Tel Aviv. So, uh, by me, I think a problem's pretty big, <laughs> you know. So you, you see what I'm saying. So the result is that um, a lot of politics. That's how I understand it. Uh, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but th- that's how I understand it. So I can't imagine in B'nai Brock, for example, they would ever learn Hamidus Lachikar Aloha. That's, you know, because it's the Arab Amil. Even though the content is actually quite remarkable. Now, you don't have to agree on everything. And if you take the trouble... And this I can advise everybody to do. Maybe the safer is not for everybody, but Rob Zevin's um, uh, masterful book review of 20, 25 pages can be read by anybody. 
Um, it's really quite quite amazing, the Zevin thing. And, of course, the original is in there. So we're dealing with somebody, as a four, who seems to have been a giant but left no footprint. It's funny. Um, the history of Claudius Roll is a history of politics. Uh, maybe it shouldn't be. And, you know, this is Parshish Tazrim and Sarah. The whole world is full of Lush and Hara, let's be honest. And the from world has their big dose of Lush and Hara. A lot of Lush and Hara is justified on the basis of politics. So if a guy's in the Mizrahi, it's not saying Lush and Hara to talk against him. Or the other way around, if a guy's in the Agoda, it's not bad for Mizrahi to talk against him. You know, that kind of thing. And it's always been a problem with us. I've seen people, by the way, who are very mockbed on Lush and Hara, on the typical Benon Lechaver, you know, talk about anybody in Shul, any acquaintance. When it comes to political figures, I have from relatives, oh my goodness, you know, they'll knock this guy or that guy from from political. And to, to be perfectly honest, I don't think they asked the Shiloh from the Chavetz Chaim. <laughs> you know, it's it is what it is. I would say he's a major victim of this. He was not shy about his talents. And so it's not like he was somebody who walked humbly and said, walk all over me. And, you know, like, uh, uh, that personality, like Rabari Levin, who said, you know, he learned to be meek and humble. I don't have the impression he was like that at all. He clearly knew learning better than most and wasn't ashamed to say it. That probably was a big turnoff to a lot of people. I can understand that. But on the other hand, he had the stuff. He had the schara. And uh, if I had the time, you know, and, and those of you out there who are interested, I'm introducing you possibly something you never heard of. If you have the time and you know how to learn, uh, you make a chavrusa with somebody in this safer, I think you pick up a lot. I mean, a lot. Uh, even if you go through his um, unique and peculiar history of Lomdas, you pick up a lot, okay? Um, and so, if in the category of, of lesser known, uh, Gedolim, I mean, he's like at the top, I would say. Now, uh, he had six daughters and two sons, so I don't think the two sons became anything special in learning, but uh, I don't know who stayed from that. The daughters, I believe, all married Rabbanim or something like that. Uh, I remember the Rabbi Rabinowitz and that uh, guy in uh, South America. No, I'm sorry, South Africa. Rabbi Louis Rabinowitz uh, was the son-in-law. And this is funny. His great-granddaughter, you know, a lot of them grew up in Israel without a father. They became not from. That's very common. Um, his, I think his great-granddaughter is Mrs. Yair Lapid. Isn't that funny? <laughs> Uh, I, I think I'm right about that. Um, you can look it up. The uh, You know, so it's like, so he left like a funny legacy. And I don't know enough about the world of Israel, Yeshua Chadash, you know, where it's holding today. It's, it's not my world. I'm, I'm over here in, in the provinces in America. But uh, he, he didn't, you know, it's, he's not usually in the Gedolim cards, let's put it that way. Even though in terms of, of, of lumbus and ability and... Uh, uh, I would say he was one of the most impressive rabbis of the first half of the 20th century. I'm talking about community rabbis when it was very hard to be a successful rabbi of Kehillah. Uh, there are always two models to go. One is, as I say before, let's call it the Chazanish model, in which you have a, a, a small group with Sumsum and you must be on them and then they go out and must be on others. Or you do the where, where you yourself try to be must be on everybody, uh, which is hard because you're dealing with the now from. And he was definitely from the second category, in my opinion. Uh, oh, boy, I see I've gone way too late. All right. So anyway, if I've interested you, you'll take a look either to Drush's Elmi or if you're a hardy pioneer, you'll 
you'll take a whack at the Hamidus Achiger Loch, at least the, the the intro part, the history part. Um, I remember he said, what's the first pilpul ever? When Moshe Rabbeinu says, uh, why didn't you eat the, in last week's parsha two weeks ago, and Aaron says, Notice I too from the fact that I'm an owner, and, you know, God wouldn't like it if I eat that. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, oh, very good. Good vart. Uh, you know, uh, uh, so you see, the arm was stalling to one point to another. That's the first example. That's an original way of thinking. Uh, but anyway, uh, once again, I want to pay tribute to Rachmiel Frimtig, the uh, lady's father, uh, I think it's 25 years, and uh, for sponsoring this podcast. And uh, for that, I wish you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.